Welcome to Blended. I'm your host, Wes Hallam, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Bo Vandery, the Professor of Operations Management at Nine Rhoda Business University. Uh, Bo is a longtime friend of McGraw-Hill and is particularly experienced in using digital tools incorporated within his learning and is a really strong advocate of using statistical analysis to, to drive his own pedagogy. So, Bo, welcome to the podcast. Podcast. Thanks for thanks for taking the time to be with us. Thanks, Wes, and thanks for that uh, lovely introduction. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm always always happy to flatter you. That's uh, that's that's part of my job. But um, keep it coming. <laughs> so, one of the things that I, I I ask quite often on this on this podcast is to get a perspective of the modern students. Um, now you're teaching over in, in Amsterdam, you've got, um, kind of European mainland students. And we have, uh, we've had quite a few interviews with people who are based over in, in the UK. And we know that those student cohorts are a little bit, they can be a little bit different. And the, the mindset and behavior of students, you know, really varies across, across different regions. So this idea of the modern student, um, who do you think the modern student is and, and and what do they what do they need from from university all right uh, interesting question uh first of all let me mention i also teach in the us and in vietnam so i have a, a bit of a wider perspective than just the netherlands and in the netherlands it's in in amsterdam as you mentioned but also in uh, brooklyn which is the original brooklyn as we like to say uh, also taught in germany and in uh, sweden and uh, 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 mexico so a wider perspective but the uh, the modern student i would say one thing they have definitely in common is they don't have time and they don't want to read um whereas you know when when i was a student it was like okay you have a professor who says uh, for next week uh, make sure you prepare chapter eight okay i'll go ahead and i'll read chapter eight um, and the assumption was basically everyone did that because either you're going to be quizzed on it or he's going to talk about it or uh, the professor is going to do something around chapter eight. So you better be prepared. And when I started teaching more or less full time after my PhD, this is uh, 16 years ago now, I was already noticing, OK, assigning chapter eight or whatever chapter to read or even like a case study. Right. We, we say, OK, let's do a case study uh, discussion. Read the case while well, you get to class and half the students haven't read the case yet. They say, oh, yeah, I'm going to read it now. It's like, uh, well, <laughs> we're going to discuss it now and you haven't read it. So very early on, uh, I decided that uh, reading is not something they do anymore and it's not something they take time for. So I started creating videos uh, for the flipped classroom kind of teaching and then I ran into the second problem, and that is students don't have time. And my initial series of videos were about 20, 30 minutes long. And that's too long. So now I'm starting to make it more in like snippets. So they're like five, six, seven minutes long. And I allow students to just do it, you know, piece by piece. So uh, embedding them also in quizzes. So there's always something like it's something to earn, some, some points to earn or badges to earn, gamification a little bit like that. And it should be, I mean, literally, I don't care if they, if they go to the toilet and watch one of my videos and do a quiz <laughs> question on it, totally fine with me, as long as they take in the content before they come to class. Because we all want, as professors, I think most of us at least, we want our students to come to class prepared. And where there's the modern student who doesn't have time and doesn't want to read, there's the modern professor who can track their online behavior to see if they are indeed prepared. 
Um, so I, I hope that gives you a bit of an answer to your question. Oh, it does do. The, the, you've raised some really interesting parts there. One of the one of the big barriers we see uh, across the industry is that motivation piece is that, you know, the first we identify the students don't like to read, then we identify they don't they don't have the time to do things. And then we we see quite a lot of resources and content are created for students. But as we know, with students, when whenever things are optional, often the option taken is to not do it or to not engage. So you bring that kind of incentivization into lots of small aspects of the course. And it would, would that be fair to say? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, for every class that I teach, there's preparations that they need to do. Uh, we can, I built them into our learning management system. Uh, we happen to use Canvas in most of the places where I teach, but it's the same for Blackboard, Moodle, whatever system you're using. Uh, just make sure that uh, they do something for credit. So they do something for points. They do something for, for you know, uh, they get a, a green check mark, whatever it is they do. They, they need to see a reward for, okay, I've done this. I've, I've done that. I, I got my points here. Um, when it's for an actual grade, I typically give them uh, two options to do it. So, so two, they can do it the first time, they get feedback, and they can do it a second time. And then the average score is stored. Uh, because so they can earn back some of the points that they lost in their first attempt. Um, if it's not particularly for a grade, then I basically say you need to do all of this uh, and you need to complete all of this before you come to class. And, and if you don't, then you're just not welcome to come to class. It's, it's that simple. Uh, if you're not prepared, please don't come to class because you will be distracting the people that did prepare uh, with your silly questions about stuff that we all know about. And uh, it's kind of interesting to see. I'm not. I'm never actually that strict. Like if people don't prepare, they can still kind of come to class. But you can see the bewilderment in their eyes. Like, wait, everyone else is getting this, and I'm not getting this. I better be prepared next time. Uh, so that's uh, and, and yeah, reward them. Uh, uh, offer it in bite-sized pieces, bite-sized chunks. Um, that's 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 the way I've been teaching over the last couple of years. Yeah. I mean, it makes it makes sense to me. I think there will be lots of. Uh... Lots of listeners to this who wish they they maybe had the the freedom or the flexibility to to do that. I know that um, in some in some systems and some education institutions, it's quite regimented as to what is and is not allowed to be incentivized or motivated. And we see some really interesting approaches to that of you know giving a sneak peek at exam questions if certain you know if certain <laughs> you know engagement metrics get met and and things like that. It's it really is, um, I guess it, it fundamentally comes down to understanding that students, you know, they, particularly the systems that they come through in education beforehand is that there is a, there's a purpose to all of the activity that they do. And if you don't overtly give them that purpose, it can be a real challenge to get them to do something just for the sake of it. It's not the system that they're used to, you know, maybe by their second yeah. year or their third year at university, they, they sort of got that mentality maybe a little bit. But, for sure. You know, and, and what I see in the students also is sometimes I see the misconception, um, an interesting misconception. I'll, I'll put it to you this way. They tend to say, I passed the exam, therefore I learned something. I like to turn that around and say, no, no, you learn something and therefore you will pass the exam. But they are sometimes in the mindset like, look, 
I must have learned enough because I passed the exam. I said, no, no, <laughs> that's not how it works, right? It, and, and when they come to university, at least at our place, we, we also have them do intake interviews. They're always like, oh, I want to be challenged. I want to be, I want to learn. I want to develop myself. But then when you get to, you know, the actual, okay, here, here's a class. And I happen to teach classes that they tend to not really love. Uh, it's more like the classes they love to hate, like statistics and such. You know, I get them in the classroom and they're like, oh, this is so hard. Oh. And I was like, okay, well, wait a minute. Didn't I interview you like three months ago? Didn't you say you wanted to be challenged? Yeah, yeah, but not today. <laughs> right? <laughs> Didn't you say you wanted to learn new things? Yeah, yeah, but this is too hard. Okay, so I need to incentivize them. I need to have videos and the fun stuff going on that they can do for credit. Um, and then through basically forcing them to learn, they actually start to enjoy it. And then they will pass the exam because they have actually learned something. Um, and that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's, not, that's my approach. And I, I realize that there's some uh, constraints for some colleagues, but the very simple thing that you probably can do is not lecture. And what I mean with not lecture is I, I tend to, sh I, I show this uh, slide at the beginning of my first class when I explain to students how I teach. Uh, basically it's this. So ever since the book press came out in the 1400s, um, teaching has been pretty much the same. It's the lecturer at the front of the classroom, reading the book, explaining the book. And I've been in those classes where the professor was, you know, writing stuff on the word or board or literally just reading from the book or, you know, maybe a little bit more advanced, but still pretty bad. It's like, okay, here are PowerPoints, but let me read these PowerPoints to you. It's terrible. The students, they don't like it. They don't do actually learn anything right? They're just copying whatever is going on. And then at home, they start to study and they're like, oh, okay. I remembered sometimes looking at my notes thinking, did I write this? I don't even remember writing this. So don't lecture, but help them engage them in, in learning. And, and you do that by making them prepared and making sure that they're prepared when they come to class and then do exercises with them, do case discussions, do uh, problem solving, do yeah discussions, little problem sets. You're you're very right. We um not to not to date this uh, this podcast um, too much, but um we just had a big virtual conference that that McGraw Hill just just ran, which you were you were speaking on, and um the hot topic that seemed to crop up in every single session um was the the presence of chat gpt and i'm not gonna i'm not gonna delve too much into that because uh, there's an older podcast episode where, we're, where i go to talk to one of the speakers um, on that but um you know a lot of the questions came up about you know assessment with with, with chat gpt and similar to how the same questions came up when you know the internet started to be introduced of what's sure. this going to do to the way that we assess and the way, the way that we do things and somebody raised a really good question around um bloom's taxonomy and 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 that you know the the arrival of these information-based tools kind of really detracts from any need for for a student or for a person to hold a huge amount of knowledge about something because it's you know in the world of work if i don't know something i google it and that gives me the knowledge what it doesn't do is teach me the application or the evaluation skills or the, the critical thinking skills for it. And you're exactly right there. You know, if you have a lecturer who is reading from a, who's basically reading a chapter from a book or reading from some PowerPoint slides, all you're doing is regurgitating information to those students, which they either could have read themselves or they could have found out on the internet. Yeah. And 
you're exactly right that i i've always viewed the lecturer or the lecturer as being the expert in the field it's it's not their job it's it shouldn't be the lecturer's role to teach people the basics it's about how do you bring your expertise to these students who have done their grounding they've done their fundamental knowledge and now how does this apply into the real world yeah and that's actually in in 2012 i was uh, the uh, head of a task force on educational innovation this is a while ago um and our uh, teaching philosophy that came out of that was less teaching more learning and I also drew a little uh, diagram and it said we need to move away from the transfer of information to the stimulation of learning. Because the transfer of information is just like you just described. It, we, we are literally, I mean, we're in the information age and information is everywhere and students can find information everywhere. And now with ChatGPT, it's just a new way of accessing information. But so if you make the classroom time about the transfer of information, you're wasting everyone's time. It needs to be about stimulating their learning. That's why I, I like things like uh, case discussions, problem sets, those kinds of things where students are actually actively doing something and they're engaged, they're involved instead of just, okay, let me write down everything that the professor is saying because he might quiz me on this later. I think, I think you're right. I, I really liked what you, what you said, you know, the classroom time is to stimulate learning because otherwise it is, it, it is just wasted time. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, in fact, actually that brings me on to, to, to something I wanted to ask you about. Obviously you've been, you've been doing this for a while um, and you've been very successful at introducing digital resources and digital learning into your courses. I, I noticed that on your uh, university profile, it talks a lot about um, how you introduced flipped learning um, quite early on in its, in its sort of uh, in its existence and its identification. So what do you have any kind of overarching strategies for incorporating more digital into your learning or is it that you look for something that fits a need that you have at the, at the time? Yeah. So that's a good question. Again, um, my overall strategy is always aimed at the stimulation of learning. That's, that's my, that's my goal and, uh, how to achieve that. Then it becomes, you know, a little bit more of the nitty gritty. Like how do we actually get there? And as I mentioned, my first generation of videos, they were like 20, 30 minutes. And I quickly found out that's not the way to do it. So I started making them shorter. Uh, I also noticed that if you make this preparation um, uh, not for a grade, then typically the younger students, particularly, they don't do it. Uh, I, I would come to class and I'd be like, ah, oh, did you guys watch my videos? And, and this was even pre like Canvas and Blackboard. So I, I couldn't even really check if they had done it. I, I didn't really have a good system to track it. And I would, but I would quickly find out more than half had just not done it. And then how do you apply the knowledge that they're supposed to have if they don't have that knowledge? Well, then I just would go back to my original style of teaching and I would just basically be explaining the book to them, which meant that, you know, the, the let's say 40, 50 percent of students that did come prepared thought, well, why did I prepare? So literally my first year was just a complete failure if I look back at, at flipped classroom teaching. So then I started making it for a grade um, I, I assigned a, a weight to it. The weight was actually too high because the preparation is fairly easy. You can easily get like 100% on it. And my weight in the first year was 20%, which meant basically that everyone graduated my class with a very high grade because 20% was a 100% score. 
So then I dropped it down to 10% and then students started to not do it again because they thought, ah, it's only for 10%. <laughs> so it's like, ah, so then my third year, I made it 15%. And that, that seemed to be the, 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 yeah, the, what is it? The, the, sweet, golden, spot. the sweet spot. Yeah. Mm. So um, I was looking for the, what's the lady with the three bears? Oh, the Goldilocks. Goldilocks. Yes, yeah. that's the Goldilocks zone. 15% is the Goldilocks zone. <laughs> because then you get to the point where students think, oh, that's actually, I need to do this because it's for 15% of the grade. And at the same time, even if they score 100% on this, it's not going to inflate their grade too much. So that's that's what I've landed on uh, through trial and error, shorter videos, um, assigning a weight to it, um, making sure that everything that they do is in some way or another tested through a quick question. I've developed more, um, let's say, uh, the, the, the questions have to be closed. Otherwise, you have to do a lot of grading. <laughs> um, so they have to be closed questions, but I've developed more questions that are uh, different for every student. So they have different numbers for every student. That's important because otherwise, year by year, students start to share the answers with each other. I ran into a point about four years, five years ago, where uh, one preparation set had six or seven videos, each five or six minutes long. And about half the group had done it under two minutes and got a hundred percent score. <laughs> I'm like, you know, even if you play my videos at two times speed, which I'm fine with, but I wouldn't recommend it because it's on statistics, but okay, go ahead. You cannot watch six videos in two minutes and get all the answers, right? That's impossible. And of course, what they, what they're doing is just sharing the right answers with each other. So then I started creating questions that are uh, more algorithmic in nature. Uh, so that's something that I've done over the years. Um, all kinds of things just to make sure that they actually go through the trouble of, of doing all of this and then coming to class prepared and, and actually learning during the class time and enjoying the, the learning. I think that's, that's absolutely right. Um, the, the approach that you've taken there is something that I would hold up as being the, the, probably one of the most optimal ways of doing this. We see it um, quite a lot of the time when people are introducing uh, in, introducing change, we get, you kind of mentioned it really early on of, they'll spend a lot of time, they'll invest a lot of resource into making something, but they don't quite feel ready to make something mandatory. And, you know, when we see, especially with the flipped classroom, not rewarding the people who've done the prep work just creates this spiral that, that, yep. that then go, goes down because then fewer and fewer people do the prep work and the quality that, you know, the, the lecture has to revert back to information transfer. Um, but one of the things I think you exemplified really well there uh, that we often don't talk about a huge amount is that kind of self-reflection, reflecting on the introduction of of new tools, of new processes, of new resources, because quite often we see somebody will introduce something in, in year one, it doesn't work perfectly, and then uh, it, the whole thing gets thrown out because it doesn't work. How, what sort of, could you give any uh, advice on on how to reflect statistically, obviously using, using your area of expertise, but but what sort of things people should be doing in order to help them use the statistics and the, the data that they have available to them through LMSs, through Canva or through, or through other things, what's the best way of actually using that to reflect on, on what's working and what's not? Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, let me um, actually 
as a quant person, I'm going to be qualitative first in my answer, if you'll allow me, uh, because uh, over the years, all of our courses, they always get evaluated by students, right? And it's always a quantitative part where you get some kind of score out of five or six or whatever it is, or sometimes out of 10, depending on the, 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 the class, whatever the program managers have decided they want to assess you on. Um, and there's a qualitative part where students write their feedback. And I'm in the fortunate position that my quantitative feedback is always very good. Uh, and, and that's certainly in part due to all of my effort, but also uh, I think I'm a little bit lucky in the sense that I teach the courses that students love to hate. And because of that, they come in with very low expectations, which are easily <laughs> met and exceeded. <laughs> and and that's, that's what I tell my colleagues too. And we, we did this in the conference the other day too. And some people were like, oh yeah, I teach math at a business school and no one wants, likes math. I said, no, but that's a great opportunity, right? Because they come in with expectation zero. So if you can deliver something at level two, then you're already exceeding expectations. Um, whereas, you know, students come into a business school and they say, oh, I want to learn about finance and marketing and mergers and acquisitions and becoming a better leader. Okay, well, try to meet those expectations, right? <laughs> so in any case, that's a little bit of fortune and a little bit of hard work. Uh, so the quantitative part, I'm good, but I look mostly actually at the qualitative feedback I get from students. Uh, also during the class, I, I, I notice a couple of students that are not struggling with the topic. Because the students who are struggling with the topic, just let them struggle with the topic. But the students who are not struggling with the topic, those are the ones I talk to and say, well, hey, what do you think about the preparation set for this week? What do you think about the videos that you watched? What do you think about the way that we're doing things? What can I do better? Right. And that's not quantitative. That's qualitative. And um, in addition to all of that, we get a lot of data out of all of these systems. Right. We get data out of the LMS. We get data out of uh, I'm also using uh, McGraw-Hills Connect. I get data out of like exams and everything. And I use all that data to see, okay, what is working and what is not working. Um, but I start actually with the qualitative stuff, surprisingly, perhaps. No, I, I it is certainly uh, not what I would stereotype a, a, quant, a quant person to, to begin with. But I, I think you're right. The, the qualitative side of it is often it feels like it's the first it's the first flag that gets raised when something is or isn't working of of somebody giving something that's quite subjective and then that then allows you to frame the quantitative investigation into it to see is this is their opinion is their is their perspective borne out by by the data um yeah. i remember you doing you did a really like big piece of work with with us to look at the impact of what digital tools were actually doing to the performance of students in your in your class, yep. and and that was that's helped us to you know go out and talk to people and say this thing has th this solution has this impact on on students, and we've got the data to back up what we already you know we would you would always assume if students are reading more, if they're preparing more, they will do better in their, in their grades. Sure. But it's only that qualitative part leading into the quantitative bit to test the hypothesis and to prove the hypothesis that, that was really helpful. 
Yeah, I've done that. So do you want to talk? Do you want me to talk a little bit about that white paper? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah? Why not? Okay. So I'll keep it relatively short because I'm going to assume that somewhere around this podcast, you're going to list a link to this white paper. Ooh, just maybe, just maybe. <laughs> just maybe. So basically what we looked at uh, is uh, from Connect, you have something called an online engagement indicator that tracks how well they're doing, how much effort they're putting in and how well they're doing on their uh, on their homework, et cetera. And then um, I have all kinds of other data about the person. So I have things like like gender, age, uh, ethnicity in the sense that are they local, like Dutch, or are they foreigners, uh, previous education, uh, location, like Amsterdam and Breukel, as I mentioned before, we have two different cohorts. So I have all of that data, and then I have their final exam grade. And since the class is actually a statistics class, I should be able to run regressions on this. Um, and actually, I even have the students run the regressions on this as well. I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute here. And so basically what I find every year, every cohort is the online engagement indicator is the most significant uh, contributor to their final exam grade. In fact, most of the other uh, variables, uh, gender, no difference, age, no difference. Older students typically do a little bit worse because they've been out of school for a little bit, you know, and then statistics is like, oh, okay, I don't quite remember, but it's not significant. Um, location, not significant, uh, whether they're, uh, local or foreign, not significant. The only other one that pops up every once in a while is uh, previous education, because if they've done statistics in the past, well, obviously they're going to do better with statistics now. Um, but all that aside, online engagement indicator is the one thing that always pops out. Now, how do I bring that into the classroom? And that's what also the white paper is about is the last session of my statistics course is on regression analysis. And I give the students of this year's cohort the data from previous year's cohort, because obviously this year's cohort hasn't done the final exam yet. They're, we're still preparing for that. And it's like in maybe in two weeks or so. But I give the data to them, of course, anonymized, so not by student name or anything like that, but also completely anonymous in the sense that it doesn't say age and gender and online engagement indicator. It just says X1, X2, X3, X4, and then Y, Y being the final exam grade. And I let them run the regression on this data themselves, figuring out, hey, all of these things are not significant. There's only one thing that is significant. And then they're just sitting there kind of smug looking like, look, I did it. I got it. And then I say, OK, well, what did you actually just investigate? What kind of data did you look at? Oh, I hadn't even thought about that. Let me take a look. And then through Q&A, kind of like a case study method, I come to the conclusion with the students, OK, this is probably gender because it's all zeros and ones. Was it significant? No. OK. This is probably age because they see like 22 and a half, 23.6, 24.5, whatever, right? So it's like, oh, it's probably age. Was it significant? No. All right, so what is this thing then? It's something on a scale of one to 10. And some people would say something like, maybe it's uh, study hours. I say, well, how do I track your study hours, right? I, I'm not in your bedroom, <laughs> better not. <laughs> so I don't know what that is. And then there's always one or two students that are like, wait a minute, didn't you show us? In the very first class, when you explained to us all of the things that you're doing on how you're teaching, you showed us something from this Connect business. Isn't there a score in there? I say, yes, indeed. That's the one. And what is the why thing? Oh, those must be exam grades. Yes. From what, what exam? Oh, this exam. Yes. From when? Oh, from last year. Yes. And then they see, because there's a huge correlation between these two, right? If you can just picture in your mind a, 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 a big a, a dust of cloud, a cloud of dots, and this is going from the lower left to the upper right. 
And there, you can fit a line through this that is, that is a, a fairly steep line in the sense that the more they've practiced, the more you go to the right, the higher their exam grade is going to be. And this works out every year for every cohort. We see this. And I show them this, like I said, like a week or two before the exam. And then they're like, oh, so if I practice more, I'm going to do better on the exam. <laughs> and of course, as educators, we're like, yeah, duh. But I, I have the data. I can show you, I can prove it. And then they start to work. <laughs> I think this kind of comes back to, 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 to what we were saying before, you know, we have a qualitative expectation that if they practice more, that if they, if they engage more with the resources, that it will be, um, you know, their results will improve, but then you go and do, I mean, I love the fact that you get your students to go and do that, that, that quantitative um, analysis of the previous year. And it kind of comes back to what we were talking about before is that they're then coming in to apply that knowledge that they've learned throughout the course. We're not doing knowledge transfer. This is then apply this to this ream of data and actually then see what is that positive, you know, what is the outcome? What's the application of that knowledge actually going to give to that student? Funnily enough, it says they should have practiced a little bit more um, throughout the term, but your your use of 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 that data and, and and that that analysis of it has been really instrumental for us in in us actually being able to prove and demonstrate that what we might say you know normatively or say oh in a qualitative way we think this works better yeah. um to actually have that data borne out it's it, it's really fantastic for for us and i love the way that you incorporate that kind of evidential proof into into your work i think potentially some people might get a little bit scared scared away by introducing something digital in that they don't know how to prove something and they don't they don't know how to demonstrate that i've introduced you know it doesn't necessarily have to be from a publisher or, or content come from somebody but whenever it's a new approach it's that yeah. getting into that mindset of test and review and test and review sometimes scares people i think and and uh, I'll, I'll do I'll, I'll quickly two comments i'll give you one bit of numbers but i'll keep it simple and the other thing is that i will point out whenever you make this change to more digital teaching your first year there's going to be mistakes and like i said i completely failed the first year but i've learned from this so uh, there's a lot of people have gone before you and so you can learn from other people's mistakes but you are going to make mistakes and that's okay because you're trying to improve the bit of data I'll give you, the bit of numbers I'll give you from one of the cohorts was a big cohort, was about 250 students. If you split the 250 students by online engagement indicator in a lower half and an upper half, the lower half had a pass rate of 50-50. The upper half had a pass rate of five out of six. So you go from a 50-50 to an 83% pass rate. And that's only looking at splitting the data by online engagement indicator. Wow. I mean, you can't, you can't get much clearer evidential proof there to be, no. <laughs> to be honest. Um, that's fascinating. That, that is honestly fascinating. And um, for anybody who do well, who does want to have a look at, uh, at Bo's white paper that, uh, that we're discussing here, it will be in the, the show notes of the, <laughs> of the episode. Um, we're just about coming up to the end of time um, now for this, which is a bit of a shame. I could talk to you all day about this. Um, as as much as as much as data scares me, it does. Uh, I do actually like making it work, um, and I do have quite a, a statistical mind um, when it comes to 
evidential proof of those things. Um, data only scares you because you never had a good professor. And I, I must confess, I my undergrad first year, uh, I did. I had to take a quantitative economics module, and uh, I did not have a great lecturer. I can say, and I did not pass that module in in quant, which probably quite fundamentally changed the uh, the course of of, of my life, um, <laughs> moving away from doing something quant based into something slightly fluffier. Um, you know, where there weren't weren't many scary numbers and Z tables and P tables to work on. Um, but I just wanted to say thank you so much for, for for taking the time to 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 join me today. Um, I know that a lot of people who have read your work and particularly looked at the white paper have taken a, a lot of inspiration from the way that you've introduced digital learning to to your to your courses, and it really your kind of philosophy around that introduction and about making learning valuable, making that time that you have with students valuable for, for the learning is, is something that I think lots of people can aspire to. Um, so all there is to say for me is, is, is thanks again. Uh, so my guest today has been Professor Bo Vandering from Nine Road Business University. Um, last thing to say is thanks, Bo. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Wes. It was a fun talk.